Welcome back. This is Andy, and this is the Poor Proles Almanac. Today, we're visited by Dr. Annabelle Ford, not only known for her work having discovered the ancient Maya city center of El Pilar, but also someone who has written and worked extensively with Maya forest gardeners. Dr. Ford put us in touch with Mayan farmers in Belize, and we were able to have a great conversation about the role of traditional forest management in the modern era. Not only this, but we got to talk about some of the bigger picture questions around where these systems fit into a complex global capitalist economy. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. If you'd like to see the full uncut video from our conversations in Belize, please join us on Patreon. Dr. Ford, I appreciate you taking some time to talk with us. I know you're incredibly busy with all of your traveling, but your work is really incredible. In our most recent episodes, we really took a look at some of these traditional MILPA systems. And I know you're doing a lot of work that's a little bit more valuable than just simply looking back to the past. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're doing? Hmm. Well, I actually am exploring solutions past. So I feel that some of the questions that archaeologists have asked of the ancient Maya, if we can actually get to the fundamental aspects of their settlement pattern and their wealth, because of course the, this society that I've been studying grew across you know, three millennia and were present at the time of the brutal conquest. So it's really incumbent on archaeologists to place them in their uh, proper due. And I found out that, or I've I don't know, I've found out. That's sort of a funny way to say it. But I've imagined what could explain settlement patterns of the ancient Maya and coming to know people who are practicing what I call Milpa Forest Garden or Forest Garden Milpa Cycle really fits the model that I see of Maya settlement. Maya settlement is not dense. You know, it doesn't look like an urban city, like let's just say New York, I mean, that's extreme, or even like Rome, which would be a, sort of a comparable pre-industrial society. It's uh, people live in the areas where they farm, and the areas which are best farmed, uh, best for farming, have the most people, and that's where sites like Tikal or El Pilar emerge. And I, I actually, you know, it's, it's uh, what we're in 22. It was uh, 50 years ago I first went and saw the Maya forest, which is pretty incredible to imagine. And uh, of course, surprised at the um, exuberance of the forest itself, covering all the, all the ancient architecture, the monuments and the houses. And, you know, it really makes you think, how, how did those people contend with this exuberance? And um, our strategy, you know, like let's think of Malthus, was you either have forests or you have fields. And to, to feed more people, you have to get more fields, so you diminish the forest. He was not thinking of how you can integrate that or if that was integratable. And in the Maya case, I believe it's forest and field. And of course, you need materials to build. You need perennial fruits. You need a lot of things that come from the perennial. So it's not just an annual cycle that you're dealing with, annual food, annual food crops, but also other kinds of things. And as you start thinking of all the necessities of life, you have to look to what traditional people have done. And I don't know why the Maya archaeologists have rejected wholeheartedly the traditional life ways of contemporary or historic uh, or ethno-historic examples of the Maya because it's really naive. It's like having blinders on. You only, they call it shifting agriculture. So they're only looking at the agricultural component. They're only looking at what the field is. They're not thinking of all the other kinds of things you need, like how do you build your house? How do you thatch your roof? How do you, you know, get all sorts of things that come from the perennial component? So I, I, I mean, it's just sort of, well, and of course I love plants. And they don't run away, so you can always ask someone, you know, I, I'm not really good at, I can see animals, and I certainly recognize many of them, but I'm not uh, really astute with things that are moving. I really apparently like things that are stationary, then if I see something I want to know, I can bring someone back and it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I think before we go any further, I do want to touch on the fact that we've already had a conversation, and you're with some really special people in a, a pretty special place. So could you talk a little bit about what you were doing and where you were? Uh, my team, my team is quite diverse, but I'm based in, my, my field work is based in, in Belize, but I work in Belize and Guatemala. I depend on a number of different 
very brilliant practitioners, we'll say, you know, people who, you know, they aren't going to tell you, they can't write a book on what they do, but if you follow in their footsteps, you're really going to understand uh, how, how to do things. It's a practice, just like speaking a new language or even your own language. You have to practice it, otherwise you don't uh, really know it. And that's one of the most difficult things for me is that these men and women that have been practitioners are getting older and the succession is not real clear. And that's where I have come in to try and ex talk about what I think is the wealth untold. The Maya forest is not, you know, a natural landscape. It's been created and co-created and managed over really 8,000 years of the tropical forest. 8,000 years ago was when there was a strong change from cool and arid to warm and tropical. And since those times, the, this forest has ex just been experiencing, I just would say, slashing and burning a lot. And if you think of what that does to plants, it selects for a lot of different uh, aspects. And one aspect is utility. And with people like Amor and uh, Narciso, for example, I can be with them and we can look and find out, oh, these, the, what are the uses of these different plants? And it turns out economic botanists have determined that the 20 dominant plants of the Maya forest are all useful. And I don't, I don't know what the case is in, in other forests. I've understood that in, um, in the Amazon, it's not quite that. It's much more diverse in the Amazon and much more varied because, of course, the civilization of Maya was all over this forest. And, and the occupation of, uh, of the Amazon is very, very different. Uh, so everywhere had the imprint of humanity in, um, in the Maya forest. You cannot find a place that has woods that humans weren't there in the past. And these people who are here today that I work with, and there are a number of other people too, they're people who really understand these different things. And they can tell me, oh, well, this had to be planted. For example, there are certain plants that if you find them, for example, avocado, if I find an avocado in the forest, someone actually had to plant it. And it doesn't survive very well without attention. So it needs more um, care than, than, let's just say, a mamey. A mamey tree, you know, has beautiful fruits too. And those fruits are big. They're, na they're native to the Maya forest. Allspice. Allspice grows naturally and probably is more productive in the forest than it is you have to really understand how to uh, get the production of the um, of the seeds that we use for allspice. But anyway, these are the people, I don't know, now I've gotten off your topic, but so all the people I was with, I, I was with recently, that was a, a combination of things. So I had my Maya forest gardeners uh, with me. I had a person who's really my education outreach, that's Cynthia Ellis Topsy, and she she's Garifuna. And of course, Griffina uh, are people who um, were expelled from St. Vincent on the island, the, the leeward islands of the Caribbean. And there were thought that if they just dropped them off in different places in, in the coastal uh, uh, Central America, they would, that problem would be gone. And they adapted probably the very same way that other people adapted as they occupied the Maya forest based on what people there were doing. And so they, they have a, a different kind of forest garden. Okay, so so let me see. I should just should I just go like who who should I explain something about everyone that's uh, there? I was just thinking about the importance of uh, like what are they doing there and what's the importance of it. That group? Uh, yes. Okay, so <laughs> it, it it actually is a typical of of the kinds of things I do. I take chance, as they say in in Belize. I was going to be, of course, with with Cynthia, and I was going to be meeting at some point Narciso and Amor. So those were parts of my uh, team down there. But when I was heading down to Belize, a group called Pishani Shim from Omaha, Nebraska, who represent 8,000 Maya that live in that area. I mean, go figure. But they are people who, who felt that they couldn't stay in their homeland and uh, now are in, uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. And they, they had asked if they could have a time to go up to El Pilar with me. And so they we're going to be five people coming down. And I say I'm grateful that it was only two. But these people that came were Laura and Graham. They represent a consortium called Regeneration Nebraska and are part of the Regeneration Maya. And were called in to the Pishani Shim group because uh, these people were feeling that with COVID, they did not have 
access to the foods that they really needed. So here's a regeneration Maya project sent down to just They were just going to go up to El Pilar and they were going to do other things, but then it turned out that they just started following me. Or I should say Graham started <laughs> driving for me. And because, and then of course, uh, you had contacted me and I said, well, you know, I could give the, I could interview, but I'm going to be down with these people. I didn't realize I was going to be with so many, but I knew that I was going to be with Forest Gardeners and I felt that, that that they would be better to talk with me, you know, that I can say, I mean, I had a different image of what was going to happen, you know, that it would be structured around their questions. But of course, when you have five people all together there, well, we were more than five, one, two, three, four, five, no, six people. I was turning it to them. We got a lot more than we bargained for, you could say. <laughs> yeah, it was a really great conversation. Yeah, it was a synergy, you could say. Yeah, and it was really insightful in a way that I think if you don't live there, it's hard to have that nuance added to the conversation. Uh, I mean, the linear aspect of it was quite astonishing for me. I don't know how it could be for you. <laughs> I mean, it was emotional. It had all kinds of dimensions. Yeah, so that'll be interspersed in this conversation. Hey there, it's Andy from the Corporal's Almanac. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast. As you can probably tell, this content involves extensive research and editing to release weekly episodes. If you think this content is valuable for the future that we inherit, please consider financially supporting this project by visiting poorproles.com and clicking on the Patreon, Venmo, Ko-Fi, or PayPal tabs. Every dollar helps offset our costs for hosting the podcast content and helps offset hundreds of hours of work put towards this project monthly. Thank you for supporting us by sharing, liking, and donating to this project. Together, we can build a better future. I, I do want to talk about kind of your traditional academic background in archaeology and how you kind of work to pair this with a lot of this community engagement that you're doing. I think it's one of those things that sounds really good in theory when you're talking about, all right, let's bring communities into these projects. But it's, in my opinion, really hard to actually get it operating and doing so in a meaningful way with the community. So I don't know if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, I, I wish, didn't Cynthia say some things about that? Uh, she did a little bit. I, I definitely huh. like your opinion as the, the American academic. Yeah. So, of course, you know, my, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely an amoeba in a place where they have rectilinear world. And um, I've always been interested in, in really life ways, you know, whether they're, at, you know, contemporary or not. But, you know, my my life career went into archaeology, but to understand, uh, I mean, my, my academic career has always been archaeological survey. And so uh, doing survey in the, the Maya forest, y you're encountering the forest at every turn. <laughs> you're tripping on every vine, you're not seeing the different kinds of things or bumping into things. And so you have to, you have to be conscious of it, even if you don't know it. And uh, my first project, I, <laughs> I, uh, I did a, I established a transect 30 kilometers long between Tikal and Yasha to look at the intersite uh, habitation. And I lived in the Maya forest for about, well, I don't know, maybe eight months. I obviously left to get food or do things, but basically I was living with people. I didn't realize they were forest gardeners, but I was living with people who knew the forest as a garden. And, you know, I just say, okay, I want to move here. I want to do that. I mean, I relied on them to to do things for me using the forest as a garden, but I was on my, you know, find my archaeological sites and, you know, document them and draw them up and whatever. That was my dissertation work. But then when I, and there, there are no people, I mean, I shouldn't say there are no people, people live at Tikal. Uh, it was a, it's a little village that managed, that was involved in the management site. And then of course people were managing to Yasha, but in a sense, you were just out there. People who you met were people you might not want to encounter all the time, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but it was, that was, that was, you know, that was a while ago. I looked at settlement and environment there and found that the Maya lived in a particular kind of, that where we found the archeological sites were in a particular kind of environment, well-drained uplands, I will call them. And in Belize, the, the assumption had been that the Maya lived right at the river. And see, that was a, that's a Western view that the river is communication, that it's water, and that all the things that rivers imply. But rivers in this area are not like rivers in Europe. These rivers, when the, it's dry, there's many, many portages. And when it's wet, and if it's raining, 
it can be very torrential. These are not safe rivers to use as a dependable. Not that they didn't use them. I'm not, I'm not that radical, you could say, but these were not important roads, for example. Yeah, they were secondary. Yeah, the river is it's like 250 uh, miles long, where the walk would be like 70 miles. So, I mean, it's easier to walk than to go upstream, we'll just say. Sure. So anyway, the ribbon-like settlement was the, the theme. So I did transects going from the river out to the interior, and that's how I found El Pilar as well. The thing is, is that I knew that Tikal didn't have any rivers and was one of the biggest sites around, so there had to be something interior. And indeed, as it turns out, the big sites are interior, not in the river area. There's sites there, not to say there aren't. And they're not small, but they're not anything like El Pilar. So that bolstered my idea of how ancient Maya used the settlement. I was fortunate to have a, an example of um, the UK, in this case, was developing, is a development agency, as an overseas development agency, and they classified all the soil and they classified them basically on simple principles and then made a, uh, like some fertility, drainage, susceptibility to erosion and things like that. Then they put their own recommendation and they were recommending where people should plant uh, or develop plowed fields. And they rejected all these areas where, in fact, the most Maya settlement were. So it started getting me thinking about that opposition, what uh, Western view of cultivable is, is really that which is plowable. And they even use the word arable. Arable does not mean cultivable. It means plowable. So if you see things about arability and you're using the word arable, then you are eliminating anything that the ancient Maya would have used because they did not use plow. So that started this whole ecological imperialist idea and so forth. And that got me into talking to people who use the landscape find out what they do and how they use it. And of course, me meeting someone like Narciso, who was very traditional, starts really get awakening you. So my career started looking at those facts, but not in a strong way until I, I decided I was going to be working at El Pilar. And when I started working at El Pilar proper, I wanted the community to know that some way or another, El Pilar will be brought into the tourism realm and they should be standing ready to take advantage of that and not let that slip, not that they that, that was clear or not, and also that the kinds of things I needed to know for developing an idea of, like I was working at a house site that I called Sunun, and I wanted to have the forest garden around it. How would I do that if I didn't have forest gardeners working with me? So that's sort of the start of it, you could say, and that was, you know, in the early, early 90s. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think Cynthia would say that uh, there's no other archaeologist that does things like I do. But, but, <laughs> but the idea of bringing people in and, and, you know, people call them citizen scientists, but these are people that really understand the forest. I have the responsibility to leave this world a better place than I found it. And as a grandmother... I want to connect with grandmothers and grandfathers around the world to have this love and respect for the earth. So although we're talking about El Pilar, we're talking about Belize, it's about the world. It's about our children. It's about having a succession strategy which speaks truth about the abuse of Mother Earth that is taking place all over the world. So El Pilar is like an oasis for humanity. And so we came up with the four pillars and the four pillars speaks to the gift that was given to us. Well, we are gifts to one another, you know? We, each of us, we never, there's nothing accidental by this meeting or this gathering here. It is not accidental. It is in order. It's in the order of the universe that it's happening. So we step into the power of that. And uh, thank you for providing us with what is a sacred space. So these pillars are to give us an opportunity to rearrange or to redirect what we originally were. We were the first people here. My people. Your people were the first people. And it doesn't mean, like, so we are, we are related. We are relatives to each other once we have the same heart, mind, and depth, you know? 
So it's for us to be bold enough to speak it and to have no fear. Things that I've learned, like one time I was up with someone, he wouldn't, I wouldn't have called him a forest gardener. He's more of a gardener. He's more of a person who worked in lumbering and knew the trees and knew, knew how to live up in the, in the montaña, you know, in the, in the forest. And I was telling him, you know, I heard that there was a stream up in this area and having surface water in, in the Maya forest is very notable, at least in the area where I work. I'm at this ecotone where there is a lot more availability of water on the surface. So we're walking along and all of a sudden he turns down. I probably wouldn't have gone up if I was going to look for water. And within 50 or you know, 70 meters, we come across a stream. And I said, how did you do that? He says, well, you asked. And, you know, like, uh, so I'm not an ethnographer and I just want to know the answer. And so after a little bit of back and forth, he realizes I want to know how we got there, not why we're there. I asked. He said he saw, a, he says, be un bicho, a bicho, like a bug. If I see a bug, I'm wiping my hand in front of my face trying to get that bug away. And he's saying that bug, it turns out it's a damselfly, can only live where there's running water. So he knew that there had to be running water nearby. He didn't know that he would find it in 50 meters, but he knew that it was close because that animal can't live without running water. So, I mean, isn't that something? That's like a miracle. Yeah. How did that happen? You know, and I don't, I don't observe the damselfly. Now I certainly am going to look. And then another experience I had was going out with a hunter forest gardener. And he, you know, he had a little bag and he had his shotgun and I had my backpack and my lunch and my water and my <laughs> notebook and whatever. And, and we get to a point and he puts up his hammock. Good grief. What's going on? I didn't bring a hammock. He didn't tell me to bring a hammock. And I, I said, are we hunting now? Chencho is a very mischievous man. He's very, he's like... Dennis the Menace, I would say. And so he says, like, am I the hunter? Or are you the hunter? You know, like, what do you want? You know, uh, you asked me to go hunting. Uh, we're hunting, you know, like you figure it out. So I sit down and, you know, observe the trees and write a few notes. And he takes a snooze. Literally, he takes a snooze. And then he tells me to be quiet, but we're not noisy. And then up comes a little tepe squintly and he bonks it on the head and he's been hunting. And he then sh later shows me he put his hammock over the uh, right near the the hole where that animal lives, he knew the signs that it had left. He knew their habits. So he's reading the ground as a meat market. That's amazing. That is such a good story. But you, how, do you, <laughs> how do you find water or find meat? Economic. Now, I tell that story to, you know, people who knew Chencho. I can remember this guy, Eriberto, also dead. Uh, he's dead now, unfortunately. But he'd say, oh, that Chencho is so lazy. And I said, I don't know if that's lazy. That's, I mean, I thought like my grandfather went hunting and he, he would run around. I imagine he would describe running after a deer or whatever. But um, wouldn't you rather be snoozing and getting your, I mean, that's, uh, it, it, did you ever read One Straw Revolution? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's no work farming. Well, this is no work hunting. It's not no work. You have to have all those observation skills already. So you can do that. It's a really marvelous thing. And I'd say one of the possibly the the aha moment, not that I wasn't thinking that way. I don't want to. I mean, obviously, I always had thought that the environment had something to do with settlement and that what the Maya were do, you know, 95 percent were certainly farmers. So I wasn't. And, and there's it's a biodiversity hotspot. So all those things are in my mind. But in 1985, I was going to return to this one place where I'd found uh, an obsidian, a, a site where they were making obsidian. And, uh, you know, from an archaeological perspective, that's very important. In fact, it still stands today as the only obsidian production site in the lowland Maya area. Not that there aren't any others, but a place where they actually have all the parts of the production are right there. It's not the, you know, the, the items that they use, which are prismatic blades. So I wanted to return there, and I described to the team, which included, by the way, Narciso, he'll feature in this story, you know, where it was, but I was using the way I drive. So you drive up the hill, you pass the the uh, quarry, and you do this and that, and everyone looked like, you know, they had a big question mark above their head. But then when I started describing where we park and then walking, it was Narciso said, ah, donde esta el aguacate, where the avocado tree is. And of course, then Aaron says, well, why didn't you say so? And right at the site was an avocado tree. It's not like I don't know what an avocado tree is, but the obsidian was important to me. 
But what wood can you eat? You can't eat obsidian in the archaeological site, but you can know that in August you're going to have avocados growing. I realized that mapping is a very much more complicated thing in the forest than the way I was doing it. I don't know, did I answer your question? I don't... Yeah, so it's really interesting. You're talking about like how this expertise that isn't framed in like a pedagogic sense. Exactly. So, oh, I like that. That is not framed in the pedagogic sense. Yeah. Because, you know, people like, what's his name? Uh, Google, they Google books. They think they can copy all information, but here's information that is not in that pedagogical, what did you call it? Uh, I don't remember. Anymore. Framework. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's really interesting. So like this whole idea of like the master forest gardeners and this idea of like citizen scientists all plays into this like expertise and more of an ancestral knowledge, which I think is in many ways more valuable because it's related to the, the world. It's, it doesn't have that intermediary of like academia or like text or something where nuance can get really lost in that conversation. You can write down, you can have the smartest person the best person on earth at farming, just for example, write a book about how to farm and use all the right words. And it's still not going to capture every single nuance, like what you're talking about. Yeah. Cause you know, like even if you don't want to hunt, you might notice you're, you're making those observations or, you know, you're walking along in the avocado tree. Well, you're going to remember that because it'll be have avocados soon. Yeah. And like the running joke for this podcast is that we're like at this when this episode comes out like 90 episodes in and it's like about growing food, but we've never talked about how to grow like a tomato. And that's like the running joke because like you have to know all of these other things. You have to know an entire ecological system and how these things relate to really understand how to grow a tomato. Sure, you can throw a seed in the ground and water and you're going to get tomatoes, but there's so much more to it than just that. And um, I, I think this plays into that same idea of how complicated and interconnected these things are and the fact that people have lived in places and through generations and generations, they've refined these very subtle nuances to becoming extremely efficient at sourcing food. Sourcing food. That's a good one, too, I think, because they're not just sourcing it in that direct sense you're talking about, but they're observing as they're walking along the tree that has has food fruit or the old dead tree that falls down has these little uh, things they call tsikinche is a, is a mushroom and you can collect that. It's just everywhere there's a difference and uh, those subtle and it's sort of a many forks. I don't want to call it forks, but I mean, you can make a decision different ways. You know, if you come this, you want this or that. I, I, there's another forest gardener in Peten and he died last year, but he, I was out with him in his milpa and he was letting certain trees grow. And I thought, well, maybe there's a kind of tree that's important. And I said, what's this tree? Ah, I don't know. I don't need it anymore. It was putting shade. It was creating competition. He uses competition in, the, in this word that's good. You know, and I think of competition, oh, one in 10 chances of getting that grant. But he was saying, you know, that certain plants need competition. That is, need the shade to force them to grow. For example, though this is what, not this case, but it, it's mahogany grows better in the shade because it will seek the sun and it will garner somehow its energies. It won't be growing very much until it gets those sun moments and then it makes big spurts. And many people like in Belize, mahogany is the national tree. So they'll clear a whole area and plant mahogany and mahogany will grow like a oak tree. If given all that space, it will branch and and it won't want to go straight. It goes straight only in the forest. Yeah, because it doesn't want to waste energy sending out branches to not be able to harvest sunlight so it goes straight up and you get the nice long boards and all that good stuff yeah exactly we'd like to honor and respect so we have development of curriculum the school garden we're gonna the pillars right yeah that's one of the pillars a garden school so that no child left indoors hillary clinton did not pioneer that you know (laughs) we did we want the children to know that the world is a classroom. And now with this COVID story, they aren't in these buildings called schools anymore. And therefore, the yard, the homes are the schools. And the interaction with the elders and the community is a must. Then we have Dr. Torres. 
His, we just came from his garden. Dr. Torres. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Torres. Dr. Narcisa Torres. We just came from his beautiful, beautiful farm where everything is integrated. And we as human beings can learn from that, that we don't have to. I went to Europe, just a quick thing. And I was shocked. And I was wondering why I was so shocked when I went to the Netherlands. Because everything I realized later was everything was just lined up and man-directed. And then I realized that the creativity and the naturalness of the, the, the farm that he has is like, let nature regenerate itself. And we can learn from nature how to nurture the earth and one another. And the other pillar, which is the one that we would like to learn from you, from the United States. I went to the United States. I went to visit her, Dr. Ford. And there's so much that you have that we can learn from in terms of the resources that you have access to that you may take for granted. Museums, libraries, huh? um, botanical gardens. Oh my goodness. I was like, wow. So that's kind of way in which we can integrate and support one another by sharing information and sharing support, but sharing, not one-sided. The power dynamics is offer often, you know, it's me and me, myself and I, and we know everything. In this time, in this time, we want to invite you to embrace our way of being the indigenous way of being. Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about this term, the forest gardener, and how do you define someone that's a forest gardener? Is there like an academic or a government-sponsored title that goes with that, or is this just people that have traditionally done it ancestrally, it's been passed down? But where does that term really come from? Well, you know, I see it all over. I don't know. You, we, we, you should do a, a search and just see what people are saying. I just used it because I knew that it was not, I mean, I said forest garden because I see all those aspects used. And I, I'm in a, a very quasi, not very, um, a very informal group worldwide that only met really once, but we have interactions on email and we want to meet again, but we came to some kinds of problems in these very definitions. So what's natural? Well, I don't think, I think we're all natural. So we have a problem of, of what is a natural forest versus a cultivated forest. And, and my, also my view as an anthropologist is everything is cultivated. I mean, everything's had impact, whether it's cultivated or not. So impact. So what's a natural? So we're all going, what is a forest garden? And it is all about trying to build consensus. Now, these are people who are working with forest gardeners or, or Nielsen AIK so has analog forest, people who are looking at how to build robust systems within the context of local ecologies, we'll say. And some are more straight practitioners, and some are practitioners who have written things, and some are people like me who uh, work with people. I don't know. I think that I brought in another archaeologist, but I say archaeology is a lower, minimally represented, but I would say that I'm pretty vocal because I'm really worried about how those are defined. And see, Renil sees very clearly that there's a move towards agroforestry in development. You know, so the development at one point wanted to make beef everywhere, so they cut things down and supported beef, and then they said, oops, that was bad. Now they want to do conservation. So then uh, that went into conservation, and now they're still trying to feed people. Green Revolution didn't work, so maybe the evergreen revolution will work, and they're going to institute uh, policies of what they call agroforestry, right? I just have read a year ago, I'm kind of worried. I don't doubt anything has really happened, but I was quite upset about it in that there's an agroforestry policy being built for Belize. And the, the idea they present is like all the rural component doesn't know, you know, <laughs> I would like to say it more graphically, but doesn't know anything. And what we need are people from the outside, like from uh, trained in agroforestry to come down and teach these people how to do it. And I, I only saw the, the, the policy thing at the very end when they were getting ready to approve it. And I just flipped. I couldn't believe, well, there's a lot of other things in it too, but really the negative view towards the rural component in Belize. Now, I don't mean everyone is an agroforestry person or that everyone is a forest gardener, but I've been all over Belize and all over the Maya forest area. And there are lovely examples. Even one time I was with Narcisa, we were going to um, 
tikals were in the paten, and we stopped to get some fresh tortillas. And he looks over, he says, there's a forest garden. And now that was in a little village. Not everybody had that much diversity in their in their yard. So you, you know, I mean, these people are, those people you're just saying with all that knowledge, they're being set aside in terms of, for suitcase agroforestry studiers, you know? Yeah, the commodification of the agroforestry movement. Oh yeah, so the anti-commodity comes in. Have you heard of the anti-commodity movement? I haven't, but I, it sounds like something that would be up my alley. <laughs> Ooh, it's been around. Yeah, it, 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 when I wrote that, when Ron and I wrote that book, there's a section in the book that is very at the end where we try to address anti-commodities, and I barely grasp it. I still have a hard time, but just what you said, the commodification of something, those somethings, I mean, in this case, we're talking sugarcane, cacao, maize, whatever, but also anything else. Now, that's really, I like having that thought because what's happening is that they don't want to wreck, they want to, de they want to denigrate still. The slash and burn is bad, the whatever, all that traditional stuff. They want to come in with their own, oh, they need, they need these kinds of chilies. Well, these people eat chilies and they might plant chilies. Maybe you want to ask them what kind of chilies they plant and maybe. And why? Yeah, or, or maybe you want to accentuate that. But anyway, no one's gone. And I've done, I have great data on, you know, the diversity of plants. I mean, the average forest gardener, I just only, I think I inventoried 20 people. And the average had, you know, like 100 different plants. And I wasn't doing any, I'm not a botanist. So I was just doing like what they told me. And, you know, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite upset. And that was when Renil, I can't remember how I got in touch. And then he said, let's do this. And then we had a meeting or had one uh, international meeting on Zoom. It was great. People from Africa and South Asia and Indonesia and South America and North America and all over. Uh, so it was really great. But Raniel has an edge, and I'm not sure what it is. And we're not we're not seeing eye to eye yet. <laughs> we're on the same page, but we don't see eye to eye. And it's partly how he wants to define it. Just back to your definition. How do you define something that has the flexibility of it? This is an embedded system forest gardening, traditional forest gardening is embedded. It's right part of the forest. You know, it can't, there can't be a good field without a good forest and it can't be a good forest without a good field. You're selecting every time you're clearing, you're favoring certain trees and you're making a decision. If you're, you are in favor of fruit, you're going to save fruit. Another person may be in favor of construction. They'll fa say favor construction. So you get this complexity, you know, and then of course what's left are the 20 dominant trees, which are important. In fact, mahogany is one of them. Yeah. These are internationally important trees, you know. You're just going to make me ask more questions the more you talk. So I, Sorry. I, first, I, have, I have to <laughs> we ask. Gotta get through, yeah, we have to get through the other ones. Oh, it's almost 11 o'clock too. Oh. Quick question. You can answer it very shortly and briefly if you'd like. So you worked with Ronald Nye, who also was a huge influence on the episode we did previously. I, I'm curious. He's been in Chiapas, I know. And I'm, have you visited them? And oh, of course. What are your thoughts about the forest management there versus what you see in Belize? If you think like the politics oh. has impacted anything. Oh, you're talking about the highlands or... Is he in Zapatista territory? Yeah, he's in San Cristobal Las Casas. Hmm. I didn't get into that kind of thing, I should say. But I should say that in the course of time that they've lived there, they've lived there a long time. All the indigenous people lived outside. And now there's a great urbanization of many of those communities that come into San Cristobal. San Cristobal has changed quite a bit. And of course, it's more sophisticated. But his a lot of his work has been in the lowlands, you know, has been not in Chiapas proper. But he's uh, he's worked at, you know, worked with Lacandon. Kippy, his wife, has a wonderful place called Casa de Pan. And all the products they use there are from forest gardeners that are in that area. So they're small holders, you know. I I can't speak to, to that. Though he has, he has like, he has a contested territories or t contested landscapes uh, article some years ago. Yeah, I was just thinking about how you were talking about like there's this agroforestry movement and I don't think it's just uh, specifically in Belize, but I think in that entire oh, region. I, yeah, no, I think everywhere. And how not being, I guess, having a different relationship with that international and regional community because of their autonomous and kind of precarious situation has played into how much impact Man, <laughs> it's like that commodification has played into the future of gotcha. agroforestry in the region. Yeah, well, Mexico is a big country, and um, I think they're very proud of some of their heritage. So they have, you know, they have the, the escuela, or what is it called? They have, they have a big work on 
farming and traditional farming, and they have lots of people who are Mexican scholars who have worked in these areas. And I mean, I would not be a good one to uh, ask. I don't know if Ron would be able to say, I mean, he certainly would have opinions about it. Of course, NAFTA was a terrible blow and really undercut the value of maize. And therefore, some people who were planting it stopped planting it. And now they want to be more sovereign. And it's a very complex situation. Uh, no, no, no. The is not a political action. Uh oh. Yeah, it's it, it is it is a for us it is a way of life. It does not. It does not separate us from one another. Whether you are a Creole, Garifuna, my Indian, whatever you want to spell yourself as being, we believe in humanity. And we believe that the knowledge of one is the knowledge of the other. Because there is only one knowledge, the knowledge of well-being that we entertain. So that that's our philosophy. And that's what we are going to practice in life. It, it, it does not entail polishing it to a point whether it becomes commercial, whether it becomes whatever you want to call it, capitalistic, whatever entrepreneurship you want to call it. Because our biggest battle here is the fact that we are swamped. We are swamped by capitalism. Not that I am a socialist, but we are being swamped by capitalism. Capitalism, we, we started producing pineapple in Belize. Hand labor. When we produce our fruit to break even, it was too expensive for our market because Taiwan would send it to Belize in cans cheaper than we could produce it. That's like the NAFTA. So that is where the imbalance is. Technology does it this way. Why don't you follow? Why is it that you want to still use your milpa stick or your milpa machet or your milpa this or your milpa that? I have one answer because it gives me a wholesome food. It does me no wrong. It brings to me health and happiness. It puts joy in my heart when I eat my food. When I go to sleep, I put my head on the pillow and I sleep. But if I eat a can of canned beef, tonight I will not be able to sleep. So that is the beauty about what we are doing. I don't know what he says about it. I'd say Victor Toledo would be a great person to, if you could get him to, he just wrote an article about spirituality in agroforestry. He feels that academics have spent, you know, really good time showing how the agroforestry is very effective and how it's really um, mediates climate change factors, you know, like biodiversity and conserving water and retaining soil and checking erosion and feeding people. He thinks they've done a really good work there, but that, and he, does, he says it's not religious. He said, this article says it's, you know, it, the spirituality is how you treat nature. And that whole relationship to nature that is really broken with the, we'll call it the farm bill that we talked about. Yeah. It's an interesting, it's a very provocative, he's, he's a provocative person. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. I, I'm not familiar with his work. Yeah, he's, no, he's really great. You'll find quite a number of articles. And I've met him on a number of occasions, uh, but most, mainly related to, um, I, w I was a keynote speaker at an international botany meeting in Jalapa in Mexico, and that's one place I met him. And then I met him mainly in those kinds of meetings, but I really, I feel he's, he's got a very interesting way of thinking. Yeah, I'll follow up with him. So I do. I have two other questions I do want to ask you. I know you're a busy woman. I want to ask about climate change and concerns and the value of the system, both in terms of how climate change could impact them. Oh my and gosh, how... that's the go ahead. That's the best. Well, of course, climate change is affecting everyone. But what's happening is it's because clearing land indiscriminately, like the Mennonites use anchor chain, put it on two big tractors, and just knock down the forest. Now, I mean, it's pretty raw to look at that, but you know they. 
They don't inventory the sentinel tree, the unusual one, the, all the ground animals, all the, I mean, I, the whole thing is just like murder. But if you look at what the milpa cycle does, it's asynchronous cycling. So they don't clear, you know, many hectares of land. Let's just say they cl uh, clear one hectare and it has a cycle of 20 years. In my ideal example, four years of annuals and then moved into succession and then mature and then goes back into that. And those are asynchronous across the landscape. So at one point you don't have big clearings. So you're going to reduce with land cover, you're reducing the fast movement of, of water, for example, are reducing temperature by having trees. And trees are also in, in the fields. Some fields favored trees are part of that picture. And also how they work with the organic matter to improve soil and Let's see, I have a whole say that the biodiversity, conservation water, uh, lowering temperature, building soil, and cutting erosion. Those are things that are just natural parts of the system. And you can imagine across 8,000 years, and really 4,000 years is probably when they really they move from sort of more mobile horticulture and taking advantage of tree falls and so forth and into into a more structured way of using the landscape. You can imagine that this is, first you're selecting, you're favoring trees, so you're hastening the succession process by favoring trees and they cut trees in a way that, so you may look at a field and say, oh, it's all maize, but underneath are these possibly sprouting, they're cut around waste level. I always thought it was into impale, impale archaeologists in their survey during the dry season, but in fact, those are all hastening, resprouting trees. So the idea that they abandon, you know, that's shifting agriculture and that they abandon, no, they're directing it towards this useful forest. So if you really look at, I mean, it's a direct consequence of the cycle to have a, a utilitarian forest, let's just say in that way. But that cycle is going all, you know, is going, uh, is cycling. Uh, variably across the landscape that I think that I, I sent you that uh, conserving the American tropics and we have that animation that we created that shows that so you can imagine for example deer like ecotones so they're going to like the secondary forest to the uh, uh, margins of cropped fields and then hot mature forest is going to be where you get your perennial fruits and, and woods and so forth uh, medicines probably uh, and, and, and construction materials it's diverse spatially. That is, in no one place is there one thing happening. And it's also diverse, so horizontally and vertically. And it's orchestrated that way. And I think in that case, it's flexible. So, you know, if, if it's getting too hot in some place, I mean, I can see you were talking about the nuances of making decisions. And these people are making decisions all the time. I was out with Zacharias, the man that I was mentioning who had the competition, gave me a different idea of the word competition. And, and he was saying that, well, I, I, saw, I saw him clear a forest. I was very interested in how it burns. And he, he makes a trace, you know, so they really know. They have even a specialist that's called a Yum Eek, which could be translated master of wind, who is the person who helps sets the fire. These are strategic fire, you know, fi and fire. That's probably an unintended consequence. But wildfires in the tropical forest these days is pretty menacing and two years ago in May we had terrible fires that really burned maybe about 80% of the Belize side of LP Law. Why? Because people aren't practicing their good fire tending or using that knowledge and I got to thinking because I, I went to a presentation about California and fires and they had fire ecologists and they had traditional California Native Americans that they use fire to burn to get certain kinds of resources for making baskets, for example. But I was thinking that they were trying to put them in opposition, but in fact, that may be fire suppression. So if every 20 years you're burning, just as an example, every 20 years in the cycle you're burning, you're reducing fuel right there. So you're reducing fuel, so you're, as fire insurance, you're creating a, a process that encourages both animals and plant habitat. You're feeding yourself with your annuals. You're building every generation and every choices you make, you're building a more useful perennial component. In fact, uh, all the well-drained uplands, those 20 dominant plants, they represent like 70% of the well-drained uplands from one plot to the next, where in the Amazon, you barely get 10% similarity. 
So you can see the kind of influence. Now, humans are pernicious on the landscape, but at least they worked with the system. <laughs> yeah, that's the choice we have. We're like an apex predator that can make the environment better for us. Or I, the term I like, the metaphor I like to use is actually, I consider humans like oak trees here in North America. Like we are capable of having a huge impact on the landscape. But in that process, we can also make everything better around us as long as we're making it better for everything around us. You know, like the species that like to live around oaks, we need to create those ecologies that can make them sustainable. Yeah. And I feel like that's what they're doing is they're making ecologies that are sustainable, but based in the place where they are that reinforce themselves. Right. Not trying to reinvent it. Yeah. Yeah, Alfonso Sewell has this little primer, and I, I really need to go find it again. But he says the next, he, he was working in agricultural extension in Belize, and he said he has this little thing that, okay, you get your 50 acres. Don't do something fast. Start looking where the water flows. Start observing things, and then, then look at how, where you can do things that are with natural processes. Really sort of like one straw revolution, I would say, working with the system. And we are, you know, our strategy, knocking down the forest and bringing irrigation, which really brings up the other thing that I'm really trying to think about now is the idea of intensification. People think intensification means, you know, draining fields, putting in terraces, bringing water to the desert, you know, things like that. So if the water's moving too fast, you put in a, uh, you put in terraces. If it has no, no water, you have to pipe it in. If it uh, is too much water, you have to drain it out. Those are limitations. Those are places where you have to change it to make it um, uh, amenable. In the case of the majority of the Maya forest, let's just say all the landscape around Tikal, there are none of those. So they say they didn't intensify. They don't look at skill, labor, knowledge, and scheduling as intensification. Look how much we had to work on to get a schedule that we could both meet. That takes a lot of work. And then, of course, labor input and, and knowledge, that observation skills and so forth. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot that goes into it. Now well, it's going to be 11 bongs. Mm -hmm. So that's intensification is what I'm saying. That's intensification. It's still human focused versus like you're putting into an input that then self-sustains, quote unquote, like a, a pipe or whatever it might be. But nothing is self-sustaining with a pipe. Exactly. The way the master forest gardeners work is by mastering nature and making that part of their culture and recognizing. So if there are bees in that area, they have a, even a word for a forest with bees. They collect honey, they collect wax, but they could recognize that they could do that inherently in the forest without completely <laughs> destroying something. Yeah, it's about recognizing what exists and how you can change it without negatively impacting it. Well, I guess realize. I mean, we can't know if you know. I mean, I let's. I presume that there may be even trees that are extinct now because the Maya didn't want them. You know, one can imagine. So, I mean, we're going to have impact, but how our impact? If we, it's that feedback, it's that recognition of what you need, and also making decisions for the long term. And I think that is probably one of the biggest factors is that a forest gardener is making decisions for the long term, not for a short term profit. They're looking for long term stability. Here, I have walked you right through Belize. <laughs> That's what Belize is all about. That was fantastic. We are, that's what we still do. And the Milpa system has been with us from, I can recall my infancy, where chicle in the rainy season, but Milpa in the dry season. So we would then ensure our livelihood through the milpa. We would come down from the chicle bush just in time to get the slash and burn going. Give it, if it is, we had three stages. We had the cañada, the wamil, and the montaña. The cañada is the one that you cultivated last year. The guamil is the one that has been left there for three years. And the forest used to be the virgin land. We would normally cut our cañada three weeks before burning. The guamil, two months before burning. And the forest, six or three months before burning. Because those are the thicker woods. 
what we would plant the array of plants the tomato the, the corn and the pumpkin will go first obviously corn and pumpkin was our mainstay that is what made us survive along with the little gimnat the little you know kamadili and gimmit that used to give us the protein but the pumpkin and the corn were staple the beans were staple and that is what the village Jaya. still know <laughs> In my garden here, I have the chaya, I have the cassava, I have the pumpkin, I have everything that I need to survive. Our food bill is minimal because we live off the little parcel of land that we have. Anytime my wife says, I want culantro, I just go and pick it. I want oregano, oregano I just go and pick it. See? Ah, the periphery is full with those things. Coconut, if my husband did not provide me coconut, he's not a good husband. <laughs> you need coconut. <laughs> you need, you know, those those things are essential. Lime. Uh, you have to have lime. Papaya. Right? Papaya, whatever. But we live off the land. We do what we learn to do from way back. Yes. We and the market never did clash because we consume what we produce. And that is what a milpero is all about. If you had a horse in my village, you were a rich man. If you had teatro, you were a millionaire. <laughs> yeah. But most of us were simply milperos. Yeah, and that brings up my last question for you, which is, where do you see this type of work in 20 years? You know, what is the goal that there's more understanding of what master forest gardeners are doing? Or is there a bigger, more overarching goal? I mean, I'm just one person. But uh, obviously, if I, if I were given the magic wand, I would want everyone to real, really recognize the value of farmers in general. In general, any farmer, the fact that they're willing to put a plant in and let it grow is, is a miracle, you know. But then the smallholders who uh, really are feeding the majority of people and then, and then having good stewardship of the land. So I, I look at the principles I said, you know, reducing temperature, maintaining biodiversity, building soil, fertility, checking erosion, lowering temperature, whatever. Those things are things that are universal that we need to address. And I see that the Maya Forest Gardener's principles are those that we need to apply universally now, sooner or the later. I mean, already I'd say seven of my 18 people have died. And each one of those, you can say it's an encyclopedia, but it's really an encyclopedia of that practice. You know, and each one had their own, in, in Spanish they say don, but their own speciality that they really knew well. So. For me, uh, I get anxious when you ask questions like that because, I mean, my goal is, okay, my, middle, my really short-term real goal is that, you know, I just signed a, a memorandum of understanding with the National Institute of Culture and History in Belize, is we're going to be making virtual and physical exhibit at the museum on forest gardening and El Pilar, and then trying to integrate it into the national education system and definitely try to address that silly <laughs> agroforestry policy. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, those are, those are my short-term goals, but even achieving those, I mean, they look possible, but they need more than just me. Yeah. So if people want to support your work, they want to help you out in some kind of way or hear more or read your book or any of those types of things, where could they reach out? Uh, put my email on there. That's really great. Ford at ucsb.edu. And of course, my espmaya.org website tells a little bit about these. I have, you know, three initiatives. I have the Forest Garden Initiative, Archaeology Under the Canopy. In other words, don't clear them. Use the canopy as part of the story. It also makes it more comfortable. Uh, the Mexican ambassador said that he didn't break out a sweat at El Pilar. I think he was exaggerating because basically that's the story yeah. of the tropics. Stick and also it. my bi yeah binational initiative, which is the LPLR is on it. Half of it is in Belize and half of it's in Guatemala. And I want to have a, a peace park. I mean, and those have implications beyond LPLR and the Maya forest, I think as well. Awesome. 
and come down and help too, you know, for goodness sakes, we're, we're eclectic, as you saw. I would <laughs> I mean, love If I bring to. a Nebraskan, you know, <laughs> Nebraskans yeah. were there, you know, we'll take anyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, but, but we've had students that come down and just stay with the forest gardeners. We have people that work on, uh, on the project of the survey work. And then basically the community work. And now we're starting the big idea of the, of the virtual and tangible exhibit. The virtual exhibit could have a really big impact if put together well. Awesome. Yeah, it's all cool, really exciting stuff. It's information that's important. And I think people don't realize these practices are still going on and how they're tied to that very long and ancient and important history. So I appreciate the work you're doing. And Dr. Ford, this has been great. We have to set the mood. And this is very important. Can, is it showing? No. Can we see? Is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We are believers. We pay tribute to this lovely land. Ah, I am a chiclero. I make mucho dinero. Thank you.